Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We have a bit of a Christmas special for you lined up today. It's a bit like The Spectator in the sense that this is almost a double issue. It's one of the longest episodes we've ever recorded of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, but I do think it's one of our best ever episodes. We've also done a pretty remarkable trailer and introduction to it, which you're going to hear in a minute, but I do also encourage you to check it out on YouTube because it's something that we're putting a lot of effort into here at Jimmy's Jobs at the moment. We have some big plans next year to make some docu-series about the economy and about British business, which I'm really excited about. I hope you'll get a chance to listen to this whilst you're cooking the turkey. I am having my first Christmas with three kids under the age of four, so it's going to be pretty chaotic where I am. So I'm wishing you a very happy Christmas and thank you for listening in 2023. Sand, salt, iron, copper, oil and lithium. The six most crucial substances in material history. They built our world and they will transform our future. They took us from the dark ages to the present day. They now power our computers and our phones, build our homes and create life-saving medicines. But most of us take them completely for granted. Today's guest, Ed Conway, the Sky News economics and data editor, has written one of the most important books of the last decade, Material World. It's definitely the best book I've read in 2023. And don't just take my word for it. Join us on this podcast where we crisscross across the globe, from the sweltering depths of Europe's deepest mines to spotless silicon chip factories in Taiwan, to the eerie green pools where lithium originates. This is such a complex kind of set of set of processes. Revealing the true marvel of these substances and uncovering a secret world we rarely see. He sketches out the mind-boggling journeys of these materials and the little-known companies that turn these raw materials into the modern-day products of astonishing complexity. Where, where do things come from? In a geopolitical landscape that is moving at incredible speed, this explains the battle for modern-day resource. Okay, so where did the initial kind of like, what was the origin story behind the book? Well, I mean, like there's a, there's a variety of different <laughs> stories. stories. Like one of which is there in the in in the intro, but I guess you know I, it does come from this thing that I you know I cover economics and I yeah, I'm I'm a semi expert although I didn't study at a university I did late, later go and do a master's so I'm a semi expert in economics and yet so much about how the world actually functions seemed to be this foreign land yeah. you know how stuff gets made and then this question of of, and also not just how it gets made, but how the stuff gets extracted. Where, where do things come from? You know, where yeah. does that come yeah. from? The glass in front of me and the table and all of the bits and pieces. Where does the paper in the book come from? And I guess like there's always been like a bit of me that's wondered about that. There's one of the very first essays, and I mentioned it in the introduction of the book, one of the very first essays I ever wrote, uh, read about economics was one called I Pencil. And it's by this guy called Leonard Reed, American economist, back in the 1950s, about how a pencil is made. It's just written from the perspective, first person from the perspective of a pencil. And it, it turns out that the process of making a pencil, from the wood to the lead, to the graphite, to the, you know, to the metal that connects the eraser, all of those different bits and pieces are such complex 
so we call them supply chains now, but it's such complex stories about how we take something out of the ground, whether it's the wood or take, you know, the graphite that's mined somewhere and how we mill it. Those are such complex stories and so fascinating. And I remember reading this essay years and years ago and thinking, gosh, that's so interesting. That's, that's, you know, how we make pencils, but how do we make other things? You know, what, what about all the rest of the things in our world? And I kind of thought to myself, well, this, this to me is kind of what economics should be about. Yeah. Obviously there's loads of other parts of, of, of the discipline of economics, but understanding the extraordinary kind of processes and sets of people and relationships you need to go from something just being pulled out of the ground to being in your hands. That is both fascinating and also quite vital. I think it's something that's yeah. important. I think it matters. I think like it matters almost for us as a species, because what are we as a species? We're a species that communicate uh, and that we, we act together, but also we have tools. Yeah. You know, we have tools and we use those tools to improve our lives. That's fundamental. And I feel we have lost touch with those tools. We've forgotten how to make the actual tools. Yeah. Uh, and in, an, in the Silicon Age, um, that has gone to the absolute extreme. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do was to do that same exercise of how do you make a pencil with a silicon chip? and obviously you can't do the exhaustive story. And the, the message actually with the pencil back in the 1950s was, this is so complicated for the simplest of all things that yeah. how could anyone come up with the master plan for it? You know, actually that was written uh, in the Cold War era and it was supposed to be a message about central planning and why central planning couldn't possibly work because it can't, it's, this is such a complex kind of set of, set of processes that you've got to kind of multiply that, you know, a zillion times for a silicon chip. And yet it is possible to try and tell that story, to go from the quarry where the silicon comes out of the ground all the way through to, to that thing that we ha hold in our hands these days. And what I guess surprised me, and it's the same thing with so, so much of this book, is no one had done this before. Yeah. You know? No one had tried to tell that story before, at least as far as I could, could find. You know, it's always when people talk about silicon chips, it's always that bit in the, the, the fabrication plant in, in Taiwan. Well, no, that's the end of a that's very long of, journey. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I kind of thought, that I, I just i just would love to understand that for as many different things uh, around us and in so doing when you're looking kind of from that perspective okay how does stuff get made and by the way it all really matters the manufacturing we you know particularly i think in this country we're quite sniffy about it but it really matters because it underlies you know so much of the other stuff that we that we do as, a, as an economy and as people um when you start to look from that perspective then suddenly this other world opens up to you because you understand more about, you know, energy, about yeah. carbon emissions, about the difficulty of trying to strategize, you know, try to make these different supply chains. And in an era that we're in right now, so net zero, a uh, possible new Cold War, yeah, yeah. It, it matters more than ever before. And so while I think people haven't been focusing on this that much in the past, I just think this is now the foundation stone for, for a lot of the conversations we need to have in the future. And the geopolitics. And we'll definitely come on to that. But to start with, like the two sort of foundational materials that you talk about, salt and sand, everyone will have. The grains. Yeah, the grains. <laughs> but it was so interesting to kind of think like how everything kind of originates from them. Yeah. When you were writing the book, did you think you'd go with the two materials that everyone has experience of? I said, I, a few people have asked since I, since I kind of, you know, wrote the book, 
how do you get the materials? And the more I think about it, the more I can't quite work it out. I think I always knew that, you know, I, that, that it, it all started kind of with a question, like, what is the stuff we need? Yeah. Like, it's a really simple question. What, what are the things without which we would be in big trouble? And, um, I kind of assumed, and partly because I wanted to tell the story of silicon chips and because silicon chips are so important, I assumed that sand or silicon would be a part of it. I mean, it turns out actually you don't really use technically the definition of sand is something called the Udden Wentworth scale, and it's a grain of a particular size. And so technically actually sugar is a sand, but leaving that aside, I kind of just went for silicon. I was like silicon in this chapter, so mostly it's grains. And I kind of assumed that was going to be part of it. I, I also assume maybe glass was, was moderately important because, you know, you, we're still using glass today. We're using it in fiber optics. We're using it for borosilicate glass, which is basically the thing that all, um, drugs are transported in. That's that kind of test tube glass, yeah. basically. We're still, it's still massively important today, but actually then I started writing the glass chapter. It's kind of the first one I wrote and it just went on and on and on as, cause you'll, as you'll have seen. It's fascinating in history, but it's fascinating yeah. for it, for what it tells us about kind of the, the modern era. Um, so sand, I kind of knew was definitely, you know, going to be in there and concrete as well, which we can talk about as massively important. Um, salt, salt, I think was always more of a toss up until I started just kind of researching it a bit more. Cause it's not like there's many people who assume salt must be one of the most important things out yeah. there. And, and most of the kind of books, there's a great book by a guy called Mark Kalansky about salt, the whole book's about salt, partly more from a kind of culinary perspective. So it's got lots of recipes in it. It's a great book. It's worth reading, but it's mostly about the history. So it's mostly about the, the, the amazing stories, uh, from the past about salt and, and salt's kind of, I have a lot of that in the book as well. It's kind of almost an allegory. Uh, salt is as a currency, salt as a form of power. Where salary comes. Where yes, where, where salary, comes exactly. From. It's where the word salary comes from. And, you know, um, it, it is still, uh, it, it kind of, it was always used as a function of trying to control people basically, because salt was really hard to, to get and to make, um, governments would, would control the, the trade in salt. And so you have monopolies, you have taxes on salt. Um, the, the French revolution to some extent was caused by attacks on salt. The gabelle, it was yeah. one of the things that precipitated, there was a lot going on, obviously, but it's one of the taxes that so infuriated people before the revolution. So there, there's, there's a lot of kind of amazing and, and Gandhi as well, you know, Indian independence, that was, that was the icon of independence was salt. Yeah. Gandhi went and picked up salt and made salt. And, uh, that was a sign of revolting against the British because the British control, control salt. So there are amazing and like quite profound historical kind of stories about salt, but what hadn't really occurred to me until I started researching it more and more and talking to people and talking to businesses. And I guess looking at this kind of journalistically is that even now, you know, that people talk about this kind of golden age of salt, because we, we were one of the world's biggest producers here in the UK, one of the world's biggest producers of salt. Um, not, this isn't necessarily a very positive story. We, we basically prevented places like India and many of the colonies in Africa from making their own salt so that we could then make said, send them our salt. Yeah. So a lot of the salt that's, that's kind of mined out of the ground in Cheshire, um, was sent off to India and it was sent off to, to parts of Africa. Um, and so that was a form of power. There's a great historical story, but what found, what I found even more interesting is that today we are mining more salt than we were back in those days, more salt, like considerably more, almost double as much. Uh, and that's gone down a little bit in the last kind of, you know, 10, 15 years. We're mining more salt. And part of the reason for that is that 
that salt then feeds our chemicals sector. And we have quite a big chemicals sector in us. There's, there's, there's kind of two sections of, of, of chemical, massive oversimplification. There's two bits of, uh, of chemicals. You've got the kind of organic chemistry, which is like the oil side of it, really important as well. Uh, and then you've got the, the other side, chloralkali is sometimes called that's salt. Yes. So there's salt basically is in 90% of all pharmaceuticals. It's incredibly important. So the Romans, you know, they had salary and actually the interesting thing is that was, people were given a rash, the soldiers were given a ration of salt for the, for their health. Uh, Salus was the Roman god, goddess of health. Today, we are still reliant on salt for our health. And that, that blew my mind because. And that's where the phrase worth your sock, they're worth their yes. salt. Sock. Yeah, worth his salt. All of this, there's quite a lot of them actually. Yeah, kind of there's worth his salt, salty, salty stories. Um, but the, it's the facts, it's a fact that so much of this echoes, Yeah, you know, and that when we, we talk about salt roots in this country, if you look at an, an old map of, of, of the UK or for that matter, the US and much of Europe, mm. it's crisscrossed with all these salt roots where people would go from, you know, often from the sea or from where the salt pans were and then transport that salt through to, to the cities. Well, today we're still, if you look at the, where industry kind of goes, it's still crisscrossing salt route because you're taking the salt to the chemicals plants to make the chemicals, which then go and get shipped off elsewhere. And so I find that just kind of mind blowing. And, yeah. and actually a lot of the, a lot of the big motorways, uh, like for instance, there's the, one of the motorways that crisscrosses Italy that follows the Via Salaria, the, the old salt route, because it goes from, from, uh, kind of Trieste all the way across and Venice all the way across, uh, towards Rome. And yeah, I, I, I find that amazing because it, it puts us in touch, not just with the physical materials that, that we need, which I think, like I say, is a vital thing. We understand the tools we're using, but also we understand that we've been doing that for centuries, if not millennia. But it's also some of the bits that I found particularly interesting was how folklore can kind of come up about certain technologies, right? Printing press and the Renaissance being one, um, which is trusted out by me and other people a lot of the time. But one of the points in your book about glass spectacles and how that ended up improving the sort of productivity and the working span of people's yeah. days and years yeah. as well. I just thought that was, you know, such an interesting small invention that made such a big difference that we just don't really talk and it's the two together and that's i think that's the interesting mm. thing it's the printing press plus spectacles it, it's it's adding kind of a percentage i don't know you know 20 30 percent of, of the population being able to see being yeah. able to read uh it's not just people actually having printed tests it's it's being physically able to read and and lenses were a massive part of that and the two things came around at the same kind of time so the invention of lenses our ability to take sand um and turn it into glass and turn it into kind of pure glass and combine different types of glass so you have these refractive kind of things that happen so whereby you can kind of create lenses that was all happening at around the same time uh, and for me actually another one of the kind of mind-blowing things is i always thought i always thought that the renaissance you know this moment where particularly in italy primarily in italy people the artists suddenly seem to discover perspective and yeah. suddenly it went from being quite a flat image of of, of saints and whatever it was to having perspective and lines and oh, you can see modernism beginning there i thought and i i think actually the conventional wisdom is still that there was just this conceptual leap and this was part of the early enlightenment and people suddenly were able to kind of understand and they just got more skilled 
actually it's far, far more likely, and there's evidence to, to, to point to this, that it was because of lenses. It was because people, were, the artists were able to use lenses to make camera obscurers uh, to then actually create lifelike uh, or kind of realistic as far as the lens is concerned perspective. And, you know, there's an amazing David Hockney um, uh, documentary about this and, and a film uh, and, and a book as well. Um, you can find it on YouTube, the documentary, which basically talks about this. It is mind blowing. The reason that the Renaissance happened in Italy was because Italy was the best place at making glass yeah. and lenses. The reason then that you had the golden age, you know, in Delft and in, in, in the Netherlands, that's because they were really good, good at making glass. Yeah. They were making glass lenses there. You have micrographia, you had all of these kind of discoveries. Um, and so, so glass turned out to be one of these, you know, general purpose technologies that we kind of, you know, we forget about it because, you know, glass is straightforward, yeah, it's yeah. cheap, it's in front of all, all, you know, all of us all the time. But it's still, it's still kind of amazing. And it's part of what explains how we get to where we are. And I mean, more broadly, what I, again, I came across when I started to look back at the, you know, our history through materials. Again, it's just like, just start with the kind of material and what we do to it to get to what we want to get with, you know, to what we want it to be is a lot of the time we have this preconceived notion about what was happening in history. So yeah, the printing press or the industrial revolution. When I thought about the industrial revolution, I thought it was all about coal and all about iron and a lot of, a lot of it was, but at the very same time, other things were happening. You know, we were working, we were improving the way we could make glass. We were improving the way we could make chemicals. Yeah. And uh, again, and all of these different changes, innovations were happening concurrently. Our ability to brew beer, you know, all of these things were improving at the same time. And so while it's kind of tempting to focus on one thing, actually the amazing thing, and I, it is amazing, is that so many different kind of points of innovation were happening at the time. And partly it was because people were getting smarter, scientific, you had, the, you had a, the enlightenment, but partly it's because people were benefiting from better materials in order to make those breakthroughs that could then, you know, get, make, make better things in the future, in, in the future. And it's the same now, you know, we have better silicon that can allow us to make better uh, leaps forward, which might be able to solve our future problems. Yeah. And it, what do you think are the modern day equi equivalents? I tell you what, let's, uh, well, the one more thing I want to touch on before sort of getting on to the modern day and the future aspect of it was the idea, the great story you tell in the book um, about uh, World War and German rubber and UK spectacles. Okay. It's just binoculars. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, just to finish that glass kind of section. Yeah. It's an amazing story. We, we, we were, and it's, there's, there's various ways you can tell this. You could do kind of like an industrial strategy story as well. Um, we, for a long period, were really in the UK, uh, in England, really. Uh, we're a big manufacturer of glass, mm. uh, and and then, as often happens, uh, the government saw that and they thought, okay, well, they're making lots of money, let's tax them. And so they imposed lots of taxes, and partly as a result of that, remember the window tax? So part of the reason you have all these kind of windows that have been bricked up in old houses is because there was a window tax, and that would partly tax the household, but there were also lots of taxes on the actual glass itself. So you had uh, duties on glass, which basically meant that the industry in this country stopped doing research and development. And we're talking about kind of in, you know, mm. 17, 1800s here. So it's the early research and development, inventing the first lenses, working out different kind of recipes for glass. And part of the upshot of that is a lot of the glass R&D began to happen in Germany. Uh, and it wasn't just because of that. I mean, Germany was beginning as an industrial powerhouse to, 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 to do R&D as we know it today. 
and that you can see that in their chemical sector as well. So things were happening in Germany, but we kind of let our glass industry go to the extent that come 1914, 60% of all of the binoculars, the kind of optical glass in the UK was being imported from Germany. Yeah. And then the war happens and suddenly people in Britain are like, well, oh gosh, this is, this is awkward, isn't it? Because we're sending our troops off to, to the trenches and they don't have binoculars. And the Germans have snipers. And this is, yeah, this first real war of sniper mm. uh, fire um, and artillery fire where you could fire your weapons far further than you could see. So lenses were all important in the same way that people talk about drones these days and silica silicon yeah. warfare. It was optical warfare that really mattered back then, which is silicon. You know, it's another form of silicon technology. And the UK was, you know, 60% reliance on Germany for the, its lenses. And, and I think about 20% of the rest was France and then 20% came from, from, from the UK. So France needed all it could get. So basically in big trouble, there was a glass famine and as it became known where, um, uh, campaigns were launched for people to donate any pairs of, of binoculars they had. You had the king and the queen donating four pairs of opera glasses and glasses they would work would take to the races to the, to the troops to go out to the trenches. Yeah. And yet it, it still wasn't enough. Which culminated, and it was it was, felt pretty disastrous and very dangerous at the, in the early years. Um, it culminated in 1915, this this crazy moment where we sent the optical, the Ministry of Munitions sent a spy to Switzerland to meet with the Germans to buy binoculars off the Germans to kill them. And the the, the crazier thing than that is it actually it actually happened. <laughs> And it happened because the Germans needed rubber and we had, we had a stranglehold on the global supply of rubber through colonies in, in the far East. And so you have this kind of, you know, crazy moment where the two nations fighting it out would rather trade these important materials with each other, uh, than, than kind of stop the war. And, um, I suppose the other side of that story is that in the longer run, we did actually manage to, to sort things out. So we did actually manage to, uh, to rebuild our, mm. our industry, which to me is, is in a way even more interesting than, than the spy story, although it's not quite as sexy. Um, it shows that you can do it. You know, you can, you can do it. Even if it looks like you've completely deindustrialized, you can rebuild stuff. You can get those skills back. It's hard. Sometimes it takes a war to do it or a pandemic. You know, that's yeah. the other great example recently. You can, we, we built up a massive kind of supply chain for, for making vaccines. You can do it. Um, it's just that often we don't seem to have the kind of gumption or the willpower to actually make it happen. It's one of the interesting things like reading the book is how government policy um, doesn't necessarily repeat, but there's definitely an element of rhyming. And one of the bits in there was you talked about how we were stopping uh, glass makers leave the country, um, which I just thought was really, because now so much of it is like, well, let's attract the world's brightest and best. Let's have you know 10,000 PhDs mm. in AI come. So that's where it's like, I just thought it was really interesting that if you tried now to have a policy of not letting people leave the country, I don't think it'd be very But But it does happen, you know, with, with silicon, like the Taiwanese have mm. bans on people going across to China mm. and it's, and, 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 and the yeah. same with South Korea as well. And recently there was someone who I think went from South Korea to China. And so, so it does still happen. And again, that's yeah another piece of silicon yeah. warfare. Of, of, yeah, letting people live or not. I mean, where do you think the sort of the future of this, because it does feel like geopolitics is changing enormously on lots of levels, but the fundamentals that you talk about in the book 
particularly lithium as well, and South America being yeah. much more the kind of the triangle for that. South America often has felt like part of the world that isn't that sort of far from the center of it, et cetera, but could be a seriously pivotal player in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, there's, well, people, people used to talk about petro states. Yeah. And now it's, it's, it's electro states. So, so the places from where we're going to get the lithium and the cobalt and the nickel are all important. And, and like, whether that's kind of a good thing or not, it's definitely a new suite of nations with whom we have to have diplomatic relations. And I mean, like yeah. famously the countries where the oil sits have, have often not been kind yeah. of happy political environments and, and that's, that hasn't gone away. I mean, like right now we're talking and there is war again in, in the Middle East and and oil has not gone away as something we desperately need, you know, and we, we, we right now get a lot of our gas from Qatar and Qatar finances Hamas, yeah. you know, it's, it is, it is, it is all bound up together. Qatar's, Qatar's, um, gas field that it gets all of its gas. I know you asked about electric states and we go back to that, yeah, but yeah. it's like, we can forget the stuff that we're still mass, still kind of enormously relying on Qatar's, um, gas field where it gets all of its gas from. It's called the North Field. Um, it's, it straddles actually Qatar and Iranian waters as yeah. well. It is the single biggest energy source on the planet, bar none. So it's bigger than anything else. You know, it's bigger than the Saudi, the Gawar, which is the yeah. biggest oil field in, in the Saudi. Uh, it's bigger than any, if you combine all of the output of all of the wind turbines in the world, it doesn't beat the North Field. The North Field is bigger than them. So it is enormous. It is massively important. And it is, you know, partly, we're partly reliant on Iran and partly reliant on, on Qatar for getting that gas out. And without gas, we can't eat because fertilizer yeah. comes from gas. It's, it's awkward, but it is frankly true that the fertilizer that is fertilizing all of the food, 90% of the food that we eat comes from gas. Um, so, so that stuff hasn't gone away. And in due course, you know, we might, we might, we hopefully will work out a way of doing it in a green way, but for the time being, not, not there yet. Uh, and all the while we're having to kind of try and understand all of these new places as well. And in the UK and elsewhere, we're kind of trying to reach out to, to Chile, to Peru, to Argentina, whether the lithium is, you know, that's the lithium triangle, triangle, well, Bolivia more, more than, than Peru. Um, and, you know, in some cases, some of these places are allies. So Australia produces a lot of lithium. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, they are places which have been less reliable. I mean, you know, we've got an election going on in Argentina. We, it's neither of the two candidates are especially reliable as far oh, as yeah. the British Foreign Office would say. And, and, you know, in Chile, you have a very, very left-wing government, which has, has recently threatened to kind of, well, they, they want to nationalize lithium. So things things are going to get more complicated, I think, before they, before they start resolving themselves. There is this kind of promised land, I think, in the future where you can, if you have enough wind turbines and enough battery storage, and you can recycle the batteries and you can get to this kind of almost steady state. There's no, I don't think there's, any, there's ever going to be such a thing as a steady state. We will always need to mine, but the degree to which we can kind of exploit can go down and down and mm -hmm. down, and we can hopefully do it in a more, uh, in a more sustainable way. But in the short run, we still, we need so much stuff. We need so much stuff. Um, like I say, there's the, there's the medium, the really the long term where things look good and all of the kind of, you know, oil production goes down, gas production, coal production as well. That all goes down. 
But in the short run, we still have a lot of that exploitation at the very same time as having this, this extra need for lithium. And we have never, I mean, to put lithium into perspective, the, we're kind of in the infancy of mining lithium. There is no shortage. We're not going to run out of lithium. Yeah. It's not like there's not enough in the earth's crust or in the sea. You know, you can, you can actually technically get lithium from seawater. Uh, it's really inefficient, but, um, the, the extent to which we need to increase the amount of lithium we're getting out of the ground, that is a bigger ramping up yeah. than we've had for any metal in history, in history. So we're going, we're, we need to accelerate that faster than we have ever done before. And that's one teeny tiny part of a much bigger kind of picture, all of which is why the coming years hold one of the biggest challenges that we have ever set ourselves as, as a species. And this is why, I guess this is why, you know, I, as someone who covers economics, it's not, I'm not like an environment writer. I just am gravitating very quickly towards this because I just see that this is going to be the big undercurrent, if not kind of overshadowing for all of the stuff we do in the future. It's going to be everywhere because everything we do, everything we do involves some form of energy deployment. Yeah. You know, we, f we forget about that. And the recent, obviously what happened in Ukraine recently has kind of reminded us, you know, the cost of living crisis has yeah, kind yeah. of reminded us. But I don't think actually it's sunk in as much as, 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 as it should have. We need energy for everything. And we're talking right now about completely changing the way that we get that energy. Yeah. 40% of the price of pretty much anything comes from energy. And we've been through these revolutions before, but one of the things that struck me as well was that we still have overhangs of all the previous revolutions. Yes. Yeah. Like in, yeah, we're not, we're, we're good at advancing, but not advancing fully. It seems. Yeah. We could, I, like we kind of, they, they, they go on top of each other, don't they? It, but it's in the same way that you have the printing press and you have kind of yeah. optical glass at the same time. These things overlap and, and an economy is a very complicated thing. And you very rarely have one technology completely winning out against another. It does happen every so often. Um, maybe fertilizer manufacturer is a good example. But for the most part, you have lots of different things at the same time. And in the same way, you know, people talk about the future and it's always going to be all about electric cars or it's going to be all about hydrogen or it's going to be all about yeah. nuclear. You know, people who talk to talk to about nuclear, it's just nuclear, nuclear, nuclear and nothing else. Everyone's banging their drums right now. And it's kind of difficult to get beyond that. But the reality is it's going to be a lot of things, like a lot of things at once and certain things will have a part to play. How, how much does look play in all of this because there's a great story towards the end as well where you talk about how basically apple changed their batteries and were changing their laptops yes. and then that essentially leads to the evolution of tesla yeah i love that it's, it's, it's so the story is it's a really techie battery person story <laughs> which a really techie battery person told me there's this whole you know like you, you can and people have written whole books on this stuff um there's different shapes of batteries okay and so actually a lot of uh, the, the battery that's in your phone is likely to be a pouch battery. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's three different types. You've got a pouch battery and that's basically kind of the outside is, is, um, it's not fully, it's solid, but it's, it's, it's kind of, you could bend it a little bit. Uh, then you've got like a prismatic battery, which has got like a hard kind of case on the outside, but it's usually like a rectangle. And then you've got the kind of traditional ones that we're all familiar with those cylinder batteries, like an AA battery or an AAA yeah. battery. And, um, basically there was this moment a few years ago when most laptops were using the, the cylinder batteries. So, um, they, and, 
Apple kind of wanted to make its ba- its laptops more and more thin. And as a result, they shifted towards, I think towards pouch or prismatic. I think it was pouch batteries. So as a result, you have all these manufacturers who are used to making the, the cylinder cells, um, who are like, oh gosh, well, we've lost our biggest customer. Apple's suddenly not using our cylinder cells yeah. any- anymore. And at that very same moment, that's kind of when Tesla came into the market with a, a big appetite for getting lots of lithium ion batteries. And they went, I think Panasonic, uh, and said, you know, can we do a deal? And, you know, it's one thing that, that, that Elon Musk is really good at is kind of getting a cheap price. And he was able to get an incredibly cheap price. And some people suggest that the, the numbers just wouldn't have stacked up if he hadn't have got that brilliant deal on cheap batteries at the very time, you know, which was a consequence of Apple just shifting from one shape of battery to another. It might not have ever happened really for Tesla were it not for that. And those, those little things, yeah, happenstance kind of matters. It's not that we wouldn't have had an electric kind of vehicle industry, um, but it wouldn't necessarily have kind of evolved in the way that we think it, it would have. And that to some extent is a consequence of these slightly chaotic forces. Um, no, I love, I love that story. And it's kind of, it just underlines the other, I'll tell you what the other one I like, and I just, I think about it actually, every time I look at my phone is you kind of think about a battery as being something that's quite inert, don't you? And kind of yeah. sits there. But actually, particularly with these pouch uh, batteries that we all, most of us have in our, in our, in our phones, they are ever so slightly expanding and contracting every time they're charged and discharged. And that's just because of the movement of lithium ions into the kind of graphite that, yeah. where, they're, where they're stored into the anode and back again. As that happens, the cell actually literally expands. It's exhaling and inhaling every time it charges and discharges. And I kind of just love that, you know, things that we think are not moving or, you know, just sitting there are living their own kind of amazing chemical lives right in front of us. And I think the smartphone, there's this, there's this phrase, uh, Peter Thiel, uh, they promised us flying cars, but instead we got 140 characters on Twitter, the, the creator of PayPal is moaning about kind of the lack of innovation in the world. And I find that's like really short-sighted because the, the silicon chip, and for that matter, the battery, you know, the battery is the culmination of a hundred years of research, you know, lithium ion batteries are amazing. If we had had those batteries a hundred years ago, we would never have had the motor car in its petrol, yeah. in its petrol kind of embodiment. We would have had electric cars. They were better at the time. The batteries were just rubbish. Um, the silicon chip inside your phone is a thing of absolute extraordinary wonder it's extraordinary wonder the the transistors in it are smaller than they're much smaller than a red blood cell they're smaller than a coronavirus these transistors these things that we humans made are so small that they are smaller than the wavelength of visible light (laughs) and they are imprinted upon this 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 silicon wafer which is the most perfect thing humankind has ever made literally the most perfect thing that we have ever made because you have it is one of the purest substances ever. The super pure 99.999999. I can't remember how many nines percent pure percent uh, pure silicon in the wafer. It is ordered into the most perfect crystalline structure. Um, these these things are amazing, like truly, truly, truly amazing creations. It's nanotechnology. It's beyond nanotechnology. What's happening in that chip? If it's if it's a new phone, they are so small. These transistors that you get quantum effects, literally. Quantum physics is happening in the phone when you're just kind of scrolling on it and going, oh, it's a little, you know, it's not a bit slow today. Quantum physics, Newtonian physics is breaking (laughs) down 
underneath your fingertips. And so what I think that that Peter Thiel quote is nonsense because we have this stuff and people talk about the kind of grand old age of innovation, you know, oh, why don't we have Brunel and what about Concorde, you know, Concorde, the jet engine, all that stuff. Oh yeah, that's all great. But how many people actually went on Concorde? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like a handful of people went, actually traveled on Concorde. Whereas how many people have a smartphone? It is billions of people. So billions of people have a nanotechnology in their pocket, one of the most extraordinary things that humankind has ever created. And I think that's far more of an achievement, far more you know, flying cars, whatever. But that is amazing. But do we recognize it enough as a society? And you no, know, clearly, yeah. not. <laughs> clearly not if I'm banging on about it. And but no I, one's listening. But I just think it's like, you know, I learned so much from reading the book and talking about all of this stuff. And I thought, why do we not take it seriously enough? And there was a sort of position you made like, sort of later on in it about sort of capitalism and this has been, you know, success of capitalism over the last 200 years, yeah. bringing this stuff out. But also is the amount of people working in these sectors, right? right? Is like, and that, again, partly makes people less invested in it. And so, I mean, you talked about really interesting site in Cornwall now just not doing a degree in mining anymore. And it's true because you've got generations coming through that are very focused on renewable technology. They want to do things with purpose. All of this is rightly so. But it means that they don't necessarily look at the oil industry. No, I think, I think, I think there's, there's a kind of like, there's a gravitational issue, which is very, you know, I, I work in services. I'm, I'm the ultimate. I talk about this ethereal world. There's ethereal world and the, the material world. Most of us work in the ethereal world because we work in services and we work in ideas yeah. and advice. Britain is amazing at advice, advice. and consultancy and you know, kind of brain power. So work in these fields, which are, which are fr frankly divorced from a lot of this stuff. So I think that's, that's a big part of it. So we don't have to think about it. We just don't have to. And actually in a country like the UK in particular, we, we have outsourced a lot of this stuff overseas. So, it, you know, it's made in China, it's made elsewhere. And partly, you know, because energy prices are pretty high in this country, we, we do less of it than we did before. And then on top of that, there's an issue that in many of these places, and this is interesting, particularly on a jobs front, you know, these places were the absolute, the kind of, the, 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 the coalface at the front of mechanizing and automating and reducing the number of people working at them. You know, we, we produce considerably more salt than we did in the Victorian heyday. Yeah. And yet a tiny fraction of people are needed to make that happen yeah. because it's all automated. You know, there's very few people working in salt, but we have produced more than we ever did before. There's quite a few people, but you know, far fewer than they ever were working in chemicals. And yet we make more chemicals than we ever did before. Same thing for manufacturing, our actual output, manufacturing output, it's higher than it was kind of 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. The number of people working in the field is much smaller than it was. And to some extent, you know, that's a story of success, obviously, because we are doing more with less. Our productivity of the manufacturing sector has been extraordinary. It's far more productive in the manufacturing sector than in the services, you know, services sector um, over the last kind of few decades. But the part of the story there, unfortunately, is that fewer, fewer, fewer and fewer people are working there. It's like, you know, we would have been working 100, 200 years ago. Actually, in the UK, was slightly faster to, to on this, this curve. But many of us would have been working in agriculture. Yeah. We would have been literally working in the fields. But we're not today because we have amazing steel and you have amazing fertilizer and you have amazing combine harvesters and you have amazing 
you know, an amazing ability to, to get ever more food out of a quite small space of land with ever fewer people working in it. It's one of the most extraordinary stories. And yet it just means we take food for granted. Yeah. We take stuff, making stuff for granted. We take minerals for granted. Um, and so I think the difficulty is as long as you take it for granted, it is fine to take it for granted as long as you can rely on being yeah. able to trade the stuff and with the world. And, you know, if you are going to outsource it to China, that it will turn up uh, pretty straightforwardly. You yeah. don't have a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal and you don't have a war and all of these things, or you don't have a, uh, you know, net zero where a lot of people are racing to try and get the same stuff at the same time or a pandemic. But as we know, all of that stuff either is happening or could happen in the future. So yeah. suddenly I think it behoves us to start thinking. I think the other part of, you know, to, to go back to your question, yeah, to me, it's shocking that there is one of the most preeminent uh, mining schools in the world in Cornwall, uh, the Camborne, Camborne School of Mining. It's one of the best places in the world, partly down to Cornwall's history of mining. Um, and yet they can't get enough people to fill some of their most important classes. And it's partly because people want to go into different fields. Maybe they want to go into airy fairy fields. Journalism. Uh, maybe, maybe it's because they, they think that making a difference, you know, they, they, they might mean kind of studying something else, studying the environment. But if you want to really make a difference to getting us to, to net yeah. zero, to achieving all of these goals, to eliminating carbon emissions, frankly, going and understanding mining and how to, how we get the copper we need, we need so much copper, crazy amounts of copper. If we are going to have the green grid we want for the future, Would like you... crazy amounts and as cobalt, lithium, all of these other things. So that go into that. If you have a chance, go into that. And I wish the government, I to quick rant on this. I wish the government would kind of recognize this. Why are they not, for instance, here's an idea. You want people to do this. You think it's good for this country because it's probably good for the industry as well. Because yeah. we are quite good at mining in this country historically, but we won't be if we send enough people into it. If you think that this is good for the country, if you think it's good for, 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 for people, for young people to have a future as well. Why are you not trying to incentivize them to do this? Maybe you could think about kind of reducing tuition fees or yeah. for, for particular courses that really matter as far as your industrial strategy is concerned. But I don't see any of that. I don't see any kind of, of that forward thinking stuff but yeah if i if if my children were kind of thinking about what they're going to do in the future instead i'm kind of they're a bit young for this so i'm subtly trying to influence them by by you know, showing them rocks and saying here's why this matters but i would say i would say go into this if you want to make a difference go into something like you know mining engineering because we are right at the apex of the biggest mining engineering challenge we've ever done it will potentially you know it could save the world yeah that's saving the world rather than going out with placards this is saving the world, actually doing something about it. One of the, what, I get the stat wrong now, but we've used more copper in the last 13 years than we have in the previous Yeah, I think hundreds. something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, but although actually, you can say the same thing about a lot of things, like food. we're going to use more food in the coming years than we ever have done you know, yeah. in history, like in the next kind of, I think, decade or two. Um, but yeah, copper, copper is, is massively important. Uh, it's important right now. It's important for, we need to build out this enormous grid. Uh, you need lots of copper in electric cars. You need more copper actually in electric cars than you do lithium. And so copper, copper is kind of underrated. It's, it's one of the materials and in one ways it's one of my favorite materials here because just because it's a bit underrated, lithium's sexy. So everyone likes lithium yeah, and yeah, cobalt yeah. and all of those things, but copper, 
because it's been around, you know, it's one of the first things we ever mined because everyone knows about copper. It's slightly underappreciated, but there is nothing like copper for transmitting electricity. There's nothing like it. And so we still need hidden away in all of our homes, lots of copper just to get us to do everything. You know? Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's, it, it is the unsexiness of some of these things, sand, soul, copper, is just because we do have it in our everyday lives and people can yeah. see it. And so therefore there isn't the sort of mystique that lithium is held. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, I think we, we probably have a, like a novelty bias as, as, as human beings. We have this kind of sense of like something that's new, therefore it must be exciting. You see that in Silicon Valley all the time, you know, they're always yeah, kind of like yeah. inventing something which turns out has existed for hundreds of years, but they're kind of, wow, it's the newest thing. Um, so there is a bit of that and I kind of see it here as well. Like, you know, I think what's going to be really important in the future is really harnessing a lithium ion batteries and making them more and more efficient. And yet you talk to people about lithium ion batteries, they're like, yeah, but what about sodium ion batteries? And it's like the, the new thing is sodium ion batteries. Well, yeah, okay. There, there could well be an important thing in sodium ion batteries. And especially if you're really worried about lithium shortage, which I don't know, we'll see, uh, it's, it's a big challenge there. Um, then sodium ion will matter because you get that from salt back to salt. Um, but it's, it's not as energy dense as the other things we still have, we still have a very long way in making our existing kind of boring technologies better, yeah. um, that could change the world already. I mean, one of the, and it's, it's there in the conclusion of the book, one of the amazing things that again is a kind of, I think isn't celebrated enough within my world of economics is just how over time we have got so much better at making seemingly kind of identical technologies, identical products better over time. So the steel, just virgin steel we make these days is so much better than the virgin steel we made, you know, a few decades ago, just because yeah. we've got better at it and it's cheaper as well. And we're better. One of the stories in the book is about the Titanic and, you know, there's a thesis that had the Titanic, you know, had they had the same steel that we have these days, it never would have yeah. uh, kind of pierced its hull uh, against the iceberg because the steel would have been a lot better. The nails were part of the problem. They were using wrought iron nails. And so, you know, and you could say the same thing for lots of the plastics we have these days. You know, fertilizer, we get so much more fertilizer out of the inputs we put in these days. Even motors, like your simple electric motor these days has become more and more and more and more efficient over time just because we get better and better at making things. So they're not sexy, I know. And to some extent, stuff seems commonplace. But there is there are these little miracles happening all the time. And I, I kind of just think that if we if we spent a bit more time, you know, with our heads down, kind of, you know, looking at these things rather than just kind of trying to ignore them, then maybe there would be more wonder about them and maybe we would be prized with a bit more kind of excitement about going into, for instance, those kinds of careers and thinking about them more. But the, one of the things that struck me that you sort of, that's almost throwaway comment in the book, but you touched on very um, lightly is the innate need for humans to make things. And without sort of turning it into, you know, philosophy in the future, I was really intrigued by that. And in terms of sort of, you know, finding meaning, what people want from jobs, etc. particularly given Elon Musk's comments with Rishi Sunak a couple of weeks ago about, you know, there probably not being a need for jobs later on this century. Um, what do you think that that is something that, um, is critical to kind of, yeah, human nature. I think it is. I think you talk to people, I mean, it's, 
I definitely get a sense when I go to places like old still working towns, places where people used to work in mining. Yeah. And I do this in my day job and I, I've done it through the book, talking to people who, who did work in certain industries. They, they had a real sense of purpose when they knew that they were, I don't know, let's say in steel, that they were making the steel that was mm. going to be on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. They were making the steel that was going to be in the shard. They were physically building a world. And suddenly that goes away. And maybe you might find a job that pays you more working oh, yeah. in a distribution center for Amazon or something. It might pay more. I think a lot of people felt that they lost something yeah. because they had that sense of purpose. And there's purpose. Don't get me wrong. There's purpose in distributing things and trying to get stuff to people. But I think they felt there was this quite primal thing that was fulfilled mm. by making something and you know, changing someone's life by taking something out of the ground. You know, making steel is an extraordinary thing to witness, particularly, you know, steel that comes from iron ore because you melt down rock into lava, actually hotter than lava when it comes out of a blast furnace, and you turn that lava into an amazing, perfect bit of metal. And there is, you know, it's like Vulcan in the, you know, the volcano. There is something that I think felt very kind of primarily important to people who are in work at it working in many of these industries. And I think when that goes, I think, I think you can feel mm. you've lost a sense of purpose. And I think a lot of these areas, when we talk about kind of left behind areas in, in the UK and in the Rust Belt in, in the US, have the same kind of vestiges. They, they're, they're, there was the purpose and that purpose to some extent is gone. And, and however much money you throw at it, however, however it, it's quite hard to, to, to get that back. And it's hard to come up with a straightforward answer, you know, because so AI, mm. we're, 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 we're coming into an era where, so I talked about how in manufacturing and chemis, chemicals and all of these different fields that I kind of deal with in the book, they, you walk around some of these places and it's actually hard to, you don't see people there's that they are kind of empty <laughs> because you have few people making so much stuff, you know, fewer people than ever before working in salt, but more salt produced than ever before. It, the, the latest kinds of fabrication plants for, for silicon chips, they're called lights out fabs because you can literally turn the lights out. No one needs to be in there. They yeah. just, they've, they're just robots go from one machine to another. And by the way, when it comes to silicon chips, that's, that's kind of helpful because you, you don't have any humans with their dust and their skin and you yeah. know, all of these things kind of, which can, can ruin a silicon chip if that gets anywhere. But that, that, that's the apex when it comes to the physical, you know, universe. You know, are, are we likely to see the same thing with AI? Very possibly, because these are amazing tools which can do the same thing for services and for, for thought processes that those tools of yeah. automation could do for making salt and making metals and making silicon chips. And so I feel like there's a, there's a kind of premonition there of this, this, this other world that we may all inhabit in the future. On the flip side, I, I, like I kind of, I get a bit revolted by the doomsterism and I, I understand why there's a lot of doom within the world of AI because people see those possibilities happening. They see, you yeah. know, jobs in journalism, for instance, you know, in, in all sorts of areas, which are going to go because of AI, it's going to happen. It yeah. will happen because these are amazing tools. Um, but by the same token, that happened in other industries too. And we came up with new jobs and new products 
there are more people employed now than ever before. Maybe they're not in kind of primal, primal industries yeah. that people would like, but we invented new products. We invented new things to do. We invented new demands, new consumer habits, which meant that we have, have a bigger economy now, much more important employment before than we you know, had in the past. Um, so I kind of think, you know, we will create those extra jobs. It's, there's various kind of economic laws, you know, lump of labor fallacy, Jevons paradox. But basically the point is we are really good at coming up with new things to make and buy and, you know, pay people for. We're really, we're really good at that. And we will do that in the future when AI has taken some of the, those other jobs. And so this doomsterism, I think, is quite short-sighted because people are not looking at human nature. And human nature is to make more things for us to do. We like doing stuff. Yeah. We don't just like sitting on our bottoms. We like doing things. Pandemic you know? tours, right? I think. Yeah, I th yeah, I think the pandemic was a, yeah, a reminder of that. I think it was. And I think, and so, so I feel about, I feel more positive about AI than a lot of people. I'm no expert at all, I should say. And, you know, there's, there's many great books you can get on it. And I suppose my, okay, if, can I get my material worlds aspect of AI? Yeah. Because I have been thinking about yeah. this recently. Um, like, so, so one side of it is, okay, AI is actually quite material dependent. So it, th there's a lot of energy you need to run the chips that are running AI. And so you're going to, and actually right now, like, I, I don't know whether it's like one or 2% of global energy is the internet. Yeah. You know, running servers, running the fiber optics I talk about in this book, running the copper, you know, it is, it is quite a physical process, um, the internet. And, and that's going to get bigger. Yeah. That's going to kind of ramp up. However, what excites me about AI is the potential for it to, you know, this is an extra kind of brain tool that we can use to try and work out new things. And you saw that like DeepMind worked out, they solved protein folding, which is like one of those incredible challenges that people had for years and years and years worked out how to understand the structure of different new proteins. Well, they worked it out. If AI can be, can do the same kind of thing with, I don't know, how to refine metals, how to come up with new ways of, of making processes that we're kind of doing to get copper or to get lithium, making those processes more efficient, making batteries better so that the, you know, you have even thinner kind of separators and even more efficient cathode active materials, all of which is stuff that AI would be really good at doing yeah. that. So. There, there is a potential for AI to be a real superhero when it comes as, as a tool, when it comes to working out the materials we need for the future at the same time as being kind of a bit of an energy hog, which it will be. And so that's all kind of quite exciting. And I just, I think that, I think it's, it's bumpy. It always is, but you see it. We've, we had it in the industrial revolution with automation. We're now just going to have it with services jobs, yeah. which is a very big part of all of our, of many of our lives. But we will come up with new ways of doing stuff and making money and making a living. And the idea that everything, everyone will just have to be on a universal basic income and just sit out and do nothing. It's just nonsense. Yeah. It's Silicon Valley nonsense. And, you know, it's from, from people in Silicon Valley who genuinely have no understanding of how humankind actually works. You know, I can understand the logic, but it's, you know, to me, it makes, it makes kind of no long-term sense. So yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be interesting, but you know. What do you think you would be doing with your career now? If you were in your early twenties and you're early in the early twenties. Yeah. Um, 
I've never really had a plan. So, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't plan to get in, into economics. Uh, I just, just seemed to be, it was just, it was actually happenstance. It was just a job that was going at the time. So I got into journalism and I thought I'd do, I thought I'd kind of write, I thought I'd write kind of book reviews and stuff because I did English at university. And then it just so happened that economics was the job that was going. Uh, no one wants to do economics back at, you know, 2003 because it was so boring. Yes. Yeah. Before the financial crisis. Well, it's a new, new economic uh, paradigm, wasn't yeah, exactly, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It was, it was the boring era when everything was just great and everything, you know, all these, <laughs> these technicians were fine tuning and economics broadcasting and journalism was all about, oh, is this fascinating way of looking at the world through economics? It's just, economists are so brilliant. Um, and so that, 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 that didn't last long. <laughs> um, so, so I know, so, so, so in terms of like, I probably would have had no plan anyway, you know, if I were, you know, even thinking back, I, I definitely, you know, I like to think that maybe I would have been an engineer or, um, you know, or a scientist, but in practice, I know that I wouldn't because I'm way too, I, I don't think I have the attention span for it. I, I like to go deep. And then once I've kind of gone deep and kind of written about something and explained something, then I'm off to so the next thing. Well, yeah. Um, so, so I'm probably quite well suited as a, as a, you know, as a journalist, but yeah, I, like I, I would, I don't, I don't think I'd have done things differently from my perspective, but I think it is, I think we as a, I think we as a kind of labor market do need to think about this kind of stuff mm. because we've kind of ridden along quite a long time. We've just been quite good at doing things like mining, partly maybe because we had like the North Sea and we yeah. had just a bit of a legacy of quite big mining companies listing in London for quite a long time. I just see a risk of that kind of going. Uh, and I see a risk also of, if you look back at the industrial revolutions, so many of the great innovations, you know, whether it was kind of working out everything from kind of inventing steel, modern steel, iron and steel manufacturer to modern brewing to uh, glass manufacture to chemicals, all of this stuff. It, a lot of it happened in the UK. You know, we, we reinvented concrete here. Um, now, if, if you kind of guess about where a lot of those things are going to happen, it's probably going to happen in China. And partly, I guess that's because there's, there's a big market for concrete and for copper and all of these different things. So there's a space as well. Right? I mean, that's yeah. one of the things about China is just not, you know, a, a large area to do these things. Yeah. Yeah. I think exactly. And, 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 and so partly I think because of that, it's, I, I just, I fear that a lot of the kind of innovations aren't happening here anymore. And, and so I wish I, I would like to see more people kind of going into to science and to engineering and to all of these different fields. What? Why did, I mean, this is obviously something that's talked about a huge amount, but like looking at it back on a different perspective, why with everything you did with the book, why did Britain lead the industrial revolution? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> a whole podcast on that itself. Well, yeah. And you wouldn't have enough, you wouldn't, because people are still debating this today. Yeah. Like people are still debating, was it, was it something to do with the, the nature of, um, the workforce? Was it something to do with um, the institutions that we had in this country that allowed people they felt more free? You know, with mining, I think I try to remember, but like some of the mining laws meant that you could kind of mine on your own land in a way that you couldn't necessarily in other countries. I think that's kind of a part of it. Partly, it's because well, so the thing, the story, 
the story I love because I think it is kind of telling today is why 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 did the UK so so actually the the, the initial industrial revolution is really a story of coal. So it's going from, from wood to coal. And the UK went from wood to coal faster than anyone else. You know, we were kind of like 100 years before France. Well, why was that? And, we were, and because you go to, from wood to coal, suddenly you're breaking free of the boundaries of what the organic kind of surroundings that you have can give you. So you have this almost limitless supply of energy. And it, the Industrial Revolution was actually an energy revolution. It was energy all the time. Really... Everything is energy. I, I increasingly, as I wrote the book, I didn't start writing the book and think this is about energy, but as I kind of wrote it, I thought, blimey, energy is everything. And that, that one of the most interesting theories about the Industrial yeah. Revolution is it's really an energy revolution where our ability to do stuff just suddenly kind of extrapolated higher. So we went from wood to coal. Why did that happen in the UK? Well, partly one thesis is it's because we didn't have much in the way of forests. We started to run out of forests. Right. And there was an ecological kind of a fear of an ecological catastrophe. We're going to run out of forests. And so something had to be done. And so you have all of these people using their ingenuity to work out ways of doing the things they were currently doing with wood. So charcoal, basically. So they're making glass and they were making, they were brewing and they were making steel and steel, uh, iron. That's the main thing. Iron and steel kind of the same thing-ish. Um, and the Industrial Revolution was all about shifting to coal. And that was quite difficult. There were all of these different challenges because coal is quite sulfurous, yeah. it's quite dirty, and you can't you know, have the same furnace that you would use for charcoal as you would for coal. And so lots of this amazing kind of brain power was happening at the same time. And partly, one thesis is it's because we were starting to run out of, out of forests to c- cut down. You had, you know, really Queen Elizabeth was really concerned. Uh, Elizabeth I was really concerned that we were going to run out of our forests. And so coal saved... Um, England from an ecological catastrophe. Yeah. So we were going to run. We were going to denude our entire kind of forest uh, land cover. So coal saved us. And in the same way, you know, obviously coal is now the enemy. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, then we shifted from coal to oil. Well, oil kind of saved us as well to some extent. It saved another ecological catastrophe because at the time, um, the main way of getting kind of quite palatable type of light in your house was to burn sperm oil. Yeah, sperm whale. So you're burning this this oil people were slaughtering sperm whales in their you know thousands if not millions there was a very good chance that it would have gone extinct the sperm yeah. whale um whaling you know moby dick it, it was all to get that kind of oil from the of the, the head of the, the the whale so oil saved the sperm whale you know it saved yeah, yeah, yeah. us from from drowning in horse manure in our cities because you had the motor car uh it saved saved the you know some of the elephants in you know in africa and india because you were able to use oil for the plastics for billiard balls and things that you would previously have used, yeah. uh, uh, got, got ivory for. I don't know if that's cellulose, maybe that's cellulose, but either way, you have all the, each of these moments where the ecological catastrophe is saved by this new material and everyone's so excited about the new material. And then lo and behold, you know, a hundred years later, we realized the new material is actually maybe a bit of a problem. And so I do think about that a little bit as we go through this current one, where we've got all of these new exciting materials and what, who knows what the kind of, what, what the consequence will be, but all of, to come back to your question, you know, that's one part of it. I think the, uh, when we moved coal quickly and we had this energy revolution quicker than for instance, France, we were way faster than France when it came to GDP per capita. 
but you can also look, you know, institutions. So it's such a knotty question. Like you need a whole separate strand of podcast <laughs> yeah, where you need to talk to a whole range of other kind of people about that. Um, one of the bits where the book made me smile was the phrase, the origin, origination of the phrase, taking the piss. It's just something that you use on such a frequent basis and you never think where it's come from. Yeah. Supposedly. Supposedly. But I like the story. So so the story is, I had a whole, actually, I had a whole long section on this in the book originally, but I had to kind of delegate it to a paragraph in the end. Like the initial drafts of the book, pretty long. Um, And we used to, one really important thing, it's not material in the book, but it's kind of salt. It's something called alum. An alum is something which you use to, uh, in the process of dyeing clothes, it allows mm-hmm. kind of the dyes to stick to the clothes. So alum is really important. Uh, and the UK, and now for a long period in, I guess the 1700s, maybe, maybe even the 1600s, um, the Pope, I think had like a monopoly on the global supply of alum. This yeah. is like one of these amazing stories. So the Pope, and then. You know, I think I I can't remember if we had like some crisis during the the uh, the Reformation. I, I can't remember, but um, you had to you couldn't tread on the Pope's toes, and and they and back to that thing that you mentioned earlier about us people being banned from from leaving mm. kind of countries. So so the the technicians, the glassmakers of Murano and Venice were banned from leaving Venice today. Silicon chip engineers are banned from leaving Taiwan and South Korea. Well, back in those days, the people who knew how to refine the alum were banned from leaving, like, the Vatican City, because uh, the Pope had this this stranglehold on the global alum supply. Um, and then somehow, a kind of someone uh, working in the Northeast managed to to smuggle an alum engineer out of there, and also at the same time discovered. I think he discovered when he was walking on someone's estate rocks and formations that looked kind of similar to the ones that he'd seen in, in Rome or that were nearabouts Rome. Um, with like, well, maybe that's alum. And so he smuggled this guy out. Uh, lo and behold, yeah, they discovered this this resource of alum. It's along the Cleveland coast. So lots of this uh, this stuff. And if you walk along the coast now, actually, it's a really fun, it's a strange landscape there. Amazing high cliffs, but also kind of pockmarked with, yeah. with, with these kind of divots and quite lunar landscapes in parts where the alum has just been heaved away. But in order to process that alum, it's like a grimy, grimy thing where basically you roast it for a long time and you need to add lots of urine. Yeah. So urine was like a really big part of this. And so for a period when, and and us, and I should have said the background to this is like, this stuff really mattered because textiles were everything. You know, that was Britain's biggest industry back then, you know, wool and getting wool and kind of dyeing wool and then sending it overseas. And so this was massive for the UK and having our own alum source became a big deal. In order to process it, you need loads of urine. And so there was a kind of shortage of urine and public urinals apparently, you know, would, would, would be set up all around the country. Um, and then the urine was taken away and then shipped up the coast towards Cleveland where it was poured onto these bonfire, uh, onto the kind of like mounds, stinking, horrible mounds. And supposedly that's where the phrase taking the piss comes from, because the piss was taken from London up to the north um, and, and from elsewhere as well, uh, and then was used to, to make, make the alum. And supposedly Captain Cook, um, the great, you know, who, who discovered Australia, um, 
got his sea legs working that trade. So the constant trade. Yeah. And Cole, Cole was Cole went south from you know from the northeast, south from Newcastle and thereabouts uh, to to London, and then up came the piss. So London, London's contribution was the urine, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the northeast contribution was the coal. Northerners taking the piss out of Londoners was also the other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's amazing. And why is Alan important? Just well, I mean, just. Alan, Alan's important because because that's how that was how you actually got the dye to stick, stick onto the, the text, onto though, yeah. the uh, it's a mordant I think is the phrase uh, and there's a great book on this called Fabric of Civilization and um, by someone called Virginia Postural which is really good actually she don't, although Alan again didn't make it fully into into her edition uh, but you, yeah you could tell the story of the world through through the textiles we're using as 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 well um, but yeah Alan Alan for a long time was like incredibly important, but then along comes the chemical revolution and we work out a way of making it, you know, with chemicals and then it goes. Yeah. And then it's the same thing, you know, like, like there are, there are definitely kind of, you know, a lot of that Cleveland coasts has iron mines as well that are kind of now abandoned because kind of ran low on iron and then we realized we could get it from elsewhere. So you, you are kind of walking through these, these kind of abandoned places. And the strange thing that, you know, I spent quite a long time, like in Wilton, that's on Teesside. Uh, there's Wilton kind of business park there, and it, there's lots of there's lots of still lots of industry there. But it's quite hard to tell what's been abandoned and what yeah. hasn't because again, it's just so empty. Is this working? Is this not? Well, that place seemed like it was kind of empty, but actually, it turned out that they're one of the biggest plastic manufacturers in the world. Did you know that they're still yeah. making like an enormous amount of uh, polyethylene in? Uh, on, on in tea, no yeah, no, about exactly. it, it's 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 like a massive thing. And this is all the plastic. Your salad comes in and all that. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People just do it. Plastic. We make. We we are we are one of the biggest producers of the stuff that goes into uh, single-use plastic bags in this country. Just because it's happened. We invented it. Yeah. We invented that stuff. I looked. I looked for the plaque of where we invented the most important plastic in the world, and it's kind of hidden away in this place in in Cheshire. It's like actually an old salt place. And again, but we should be proud of that nation. Well, we, should, I mean, we should. We should. I think because it's 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 awkward. It's awkward in certain ways, but yeah. it's also an important material that has made the world so much more healthy than it has made it unhealthy. That's a downside of terrible kind of plastic pollution, microplastics, all of that. However, gosh, what you know, there were if we didn't have plastics, we'd be yeah. screwed. You know, they are they are so important for absolutely everything, and yet we 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 just hide away our heritage of this stuff. We hide away our chemicals heritage. Yeah. We, we invented so many things. I went looking in, in Glasgow for, we used to have the world's, two of the tallest chimneys in the world, the two of the tallest structures in the yeah. world. They were the two tallest chimneys in the world in Glasgow uh, because it was one of the biggest uh, producers. They took salt and they turned it into soda ash, which is an amazing, important chemical. The chimneys have long gone. There isn't even a plaque to, to denote where they once were. It's just like a kind of motorway overpass. And I kind of walked through this area just thinking, why? Why do we forget? Yeah. Like, why do we just so easily forget the stuff that is the fabric of of our existence and that we should be proud of? You know, with reservations, but proud on the and totally right. I, I, I'm with you. I mean, one of the bits as well was where you talk about sort of uh, I can't remember the number, but Nicholas Tsar uh, Nicholas coming over from Russia to look at quite like our salt mines and so on. I mean, that's yeah. something that we really. We, when we were at number 10, we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, where are we going to take world leaders? Like, what do they want to see, et cetera, when they're here? And I just thought, you know, some of this stuff doesn't doesn't change, right? But That's we, the equivalent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. we took them to the salt because the, the Russians 
were were, were kind of getting our salt yeah. back then and now where would you take them kind of now like well you know, i was thinking bletchley park was just quite interesting where we are a bit proud of our history and there's just stories like bletchley which we love talking about and seems to have a kind of right real zeitgeist and actually when i was reading the book i was like there's so many of these stories that are regional right across the uk of where we were world leaders at various points in the world and we just sort of like you say it's i don't know if it's a bit of a british kind of classic thing of well yeah we just won't shout about it yeah um, I think there's a bit of that. I think there was a bit of the last kind of for the last kind of 10, 15, 20 years, it's been very unfashionable to to go to dirty places. So, yeah. you know, I don't know if, if you had anything to do with this, but, you know, in number 10, there, f- for a while, I heard from people who were there, yeah. it, you kind of weren't allowed to send the prime minister for a photo call in front of big hulking kind of refinery towers. Yeah. Because, because the optics were too bad. And and yet, if we're going to get to net zero, we need some of the stuff that comes out of those refineries. And so, you know, there's, 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 there's awkwardness, and I can understand why. But like, for instance, you know, there's a place in, in Humberside, the Humber Refinery. They take a barrel of oil and they get out the very bottom of it. They get this type of coke called uh, anode coke or graphite coke which later goes on to become the graphite that goes into your mobile phone. It's in, in, in the battery. So mm-hmm. the, the graphite in the battery, it comes from the North Sea. You know, we're making it out of North Sea oil. And yet there's still a lot of people within government who are literally unaware of this. And they weren't aware of this until I did a piece on in Sky about it. They weren't aware of it. And I think there's a bit of cognitive dissonance that there's dirty things and there's clean things and we need to just focus on the clean things. But unfortunately, to get to the clean future, we might need a bit more of the dirty stuff to get us there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I agree in that. Well, yeah, and I think there was some stuff in number 10. Politicians advisors are always very risk averse. I mean, there was more around. Uh, Thames Water came in, wanted the PM to go and see the super sewer. Right. And I was just, I'm sorry, but there's no way that I'll get past the press team. The idea of going to the world's biggest ton of shit with what we're going through at the moment quite i'm afraid it's great it's an engineering superstar it's the metaphor for <laughs> the, the see yeah okay oh, right yeah, um, yeah. and well, it is an amazing structure you're the expert on that so, uh but yeah <laughs> this, this stuff matters totally two two final questions uh i'll let you take them whichever way you want um career advice for young aspiring economists and journalists and then also what sources of information? Because I think that's one of the modern things now that really can change a person's life. Can they get themselves in the right sources of information? As an economics editor of Sky, you must have a whole range of things that you look at. But just what other things that people should sign up to or read to kind of get a bit of a better handle on this stuff? Aside from the books. <laughs> the books are starting. The books are good know, well, yeah. yeah, it really is. Um, I would say, okay, so just general, general advice, because, so I cover economics, but this is not the kind of mainstream of economics Mm -hmm. in any way. And I've just kind of, in this case, I've just literally followed my curiosity and gone down various different wormholes. And it turns out, I think there is a big, there is an enormous appetite for people to try and understand the world that we inhabit. And I think there's an undersupply of explanation, you know? A lot of what we do as journalists is, is explanatory. You know, I, I, I like breaking stories, but I really like also explaining and saying, um, this is why, this is the way the world works, yeah. you know? And so I think if you just follow your curiosity, then, you know, so much of the time, 
I think there will be a wellspring of, of, of interest in, in, in those things. If you're interested in it, for the most part, there will be enough people. Yeah. Well, thankfully, you know, thank, due to the internet, we have ways of getting to transmitting this stuff to people. So that's kind of the main, the main thing. I mean, in terms of kind of sources of information, I did, I did a, I just, it was just the old fashioned stuff when I started writing this book. I talked to a lot of people, mm. a lot of people from within, you know, mining, engineering, science, geology, economics, you know, I had hundreds of conversations because it's what we do as journalists. We talk to people and we do lots of reading as well. Um, part, partly because actually this, this book is about six materials. I, I, there was no template for what those materials would be. So normally my first bit of advice would be find the spreadsheet, yeah. start with the spreadsheet and dig deeper into the spreadsheet. Cause I, I do a lot of data stuff. I'm not like a, I know I was never taught data journalism and I, I'm a bit, I'm a bit, maybe I'm kind of niffy and gammony. I don't know about these things, but I, I'm a bit like, oh, you know, everyone's kind of obsessed with data journalism and OSINT and all of these things, and they are really important. But I do think there are kind of fundamental precepts of journalism that basically are saying the same thing, which is like, try to understand what is happening, be rational about it, yeah. seek evidence. And that evidence, maybe it's data, maybe it's testimony, maybe it's just, you know, right there in front of you. But evidence, whether it's data or whether it's, you know, visual or something else, is kind of beside the point. We we within my field should just be seeking sources and evidence and we should try and be as good as we can at all of everything including data like i i'm into it but i never there was no inherent reason why i you know i'm was going to get it yeah heaven knows how i did so so i talked to a lot of people and i did a lot of reading like crazy amounts of reading for this and my my objective this is a statement of the obvious, but I still think it's so, so, so important. I will never, I will not write about something until I understand it. Yeah. And I know that sounds like obvious. Of course, of course you wouldn't. I mean, you'd be so surprised at how much we have to within the world of, econ uh, of journalism and policymaking and advice have to give advice on things that we entirely understand. Yeah. And it's discomforting. And we're often pushed into it because there's not enough time. Okay. And you've got to get the, briefing notes or the, the article or the essay in, but I just nowadays, I, I will always, you know, I, I, yeah, I will always just try to understand something fully, fully within my kind of, you know, fiber before I begin to explain it. And once you've, once you've really done the homework, then you can explain it brilliantly. Yeah. Once you understand it and also. You can spot a bluffer from a mile away. You can spot a bluffer from a mile away. And I, I see them yeah. in my, in my, you know, there have been even, you know, eminent people in great positions of authority, maybe even chancellors, maybe even governors of the Bank of England. And I've been like, you're bluffing. Yeah. You're bluffing. And, and fair enough, because no one can understand everything. But getting to that state of understanding something well enough. And that was hard in this case of this book because I was going through various different fields. I'm not a geologist. I'm not, you know, a mining engineer. I'm none of these things. I'm not a scientist. But I did want to understand this enough that I could write about it in a way that would feel kind of engaging and, and, and not like bluff. And so 
Yeah, but research the thing is, really with matters. The, with the bluffing thing, I always think it's like... It's, it's, but we are a nation of bluffers. That's the other issue yeah. is, that, is that, you know, I, I, went to, I went to Oxford and uh, I did tutorials there and you have to bluff your way through the tutorial and we're taught. I think, I think this is one of the problems with our education system is that it skews us towards bluffing. It skews yeah. us towards being really kind of plausible and coming, you know, and you go into, you go into number 10 and you need to be plausible. Yeah. And we're, we're bloody good at that as a nation. And we're bloody good at giving advice, you know, consultancy, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, accountancy, all of these different kind of things where kind of it's about, you know, I know, just, just take it from me. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so I, I think that is a bit of a slightly poisonous strain that runs through society. And, you know, Oxbridge is the kind of ultimate example of it, but it goes through a lot of our education system, frankly. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm guilty that I went through that system as well. Uh, but as a result, I'm, I, I'm kind of attuned to seeing when people are bluffing. Yeah. But I think that's it. When you get older, it's easier. Well, of course, it's easier to spot when people are bluffing. It's also, I think, when people are bluffing, I think, but you're bluffing me and you, you probably want to be sort of impressing. It's the people that will know you're bluffing that you want to impress the most. So it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. You, yeah. Excuse towards you. You're kind of doing it because you're. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, 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 it's awkward. It's awkward. I mean, I've bluffed. I've spent so much of my life. I spent a lot of my early, the early part of my career bluffing and feeling really uncomfortable about it because I was, I was being an economics correspondent in a field right. that I didn't fully understand. And you're, you're kind of forced to do that initially in journalism. It's terrible. Um, but I shouldn't say this, but yeah, I, I, I was, I was covering economics for a long time in my kind of early twenties. Didn't really understand it. I had to try and teach myself along yeah. the way and only later kind of got to a stage where I did understand it. So you do, unfortunately. You do end up having to bluff, bluff your way to a certain point. But is this why you're doing books partly now? Because in a way, if you're doing four or five minutes, you know, to TV on inflation figures or yeah. unemployment figures. Well, two, two and a half, if yeah. you're lucky. Yeah, right. Like, there's only so much that can be said, really, yeah. in that. And it's quite factual. So yeah. it's, it's not bluffing as such. It's just easier to kind of do. Whereas you can't bluff that. Yeah. No, you can't. No, I could. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Hopefully not. I mean, I... <laughs> I think I think you can get to get across quite a lot in in two and a half minutes, like a surprising amount. But there's always there is so much kind of depth and work that that yeah. goes into a lot of a lot of a lot of reporting that sadly is just kind of lost. Yeah. I also, you know, we we go off, you know, I'll, I'll go off to to film somewhere, and it'll be just because we're using somewhere as a case study for a, a package I'm making, and it's it's just a nice case study. You know, we're into case studies because it looks good and blah blah blah. And it turned out often that the story is, is not what you're using the case study to illustrate. Mm. It's the actual case study. Like I, you know, literally just the other day wrote a piece, a little sub stack kind of associated with this book. And I wrote a piece about one of the places I visited, a manufacturer in Birmingham. They, they make, they used to make the nibs for like pens. Oh yeah. Um, and, and now they make these amazingly thin little bits of metal and they, they churn them out in extraordinary numbers and they. There was an electrode they were making. So I went there, I went there basically to do a piece about the super deduction and, you know, yeah, why yeah, investment yeah, yeah. mattered. They had a new machine and it was blah, blah, blah. But the business were making this electrode that goes into the rear view mirror of your, of your car. So they send the electrode off to China probably, and it goes into a rear view mirror and that's the bit that helps it dim. So you don't get the, and the glare, you know, when, when you're looking in your rear view mirror, they make. 55% of the world's electrodes for these rear view mirrors. And I, and for me, that blew me away. Cause it's like, 
wow, no. globalization in this, this, this little factory in Birmingham no, yeah. is a, a, a kind of pinch point for the world, you know? Um, that didn't make it into my piece at all. Like that's nowhere in your piece, of course, because you're kind of talking about the super deduction. And often, you know, in, in a way the book started, go back to where we started, um, I went off to a mine to make some piece about Brexit, of all things. I went to a gold mine because there was something about gold trade figure blah, blah, blah. It's too boring to say. It's just so boring. Um, uh, but we're still talking about Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I kind of was in this gold mine and I was like, Blimey, they are tearing down this mountain to get gold. Yeah. And like, what do we use gold for? Mostly for, uh, for, you know, for jewelry and to put it under the ground. There's some other important uses, but for the most part, it's for stuff that we couldn't do really need for yeah, civilization. Yeah, yeah, totally. And they're tearing down a mountain to do it. It's like a sacred mountain for the local Native American tribe. And that kind of, I, I'm just blown away by it. And to some extent, that's where it all started. Cause I just thought, well, that's what we exploit to get the stuff we don't need. So what do we exploit to get the stuff we do need? And that was all, you know, on a foray for finding a, something to illustrate a piece about something else, a piece about data, about Brexit, something else entirely. So, so a lot of stuff kind of falls by the wayside in journalism and you can actually kind of find a more interesting... But you get to bring it all back though, right? That's one of, I guess, one of the interesting that you can go to. Because I was going to ask how many MRs you clocked up doing the book. Yeah. I suppose you're kind of... Quite a lot. Yeah. Quite a lot. And, but, but actually less than I would, would have liked because it was COVID. Right. So this was, yeah. this was all... Yeah. This, I wrote this, you know, a lot of this during COVID. And in some ways it was quite an intellectual escape, you know, yeah. in a quite depressing period. Um, so I would have... I didn't go to China this time. I've been to China a couple of times on, on ministerial visits. Um, but I didn't go this time. But I was able to use some of that material. Um, but I did go, you know, to Chile. I went to a few other places um, because you, you've got to see, you've got to see the mines. You've yeah. got to see where it comes from. And I wanted to lay my hand on the rock that would later become the thing, yeah. the device that we use. That was important to me. Completely. And final, what's the substack called? Just so people can sign it's called, it. Is, I think it's just called Material World. It's like, Material you know, if you search for Ed Conway Material World, I've just started. It's just like little extra things around the book because... Yeah. This is not just, you know, the, this is a whole new way of looking at the world that I think we need to be doing a lot more of in the future. So hopefully it's the start of things. So will there be other books in the pipeline? Well, it depends oh. how well this one's so <laughs> well, good. Well, no, it's brilliant. It's my favorite book I've read of 2023. Oh, really? It's, oh, thank you. Brilliant. Wolf of Wall Street or The Big Shore? Uh, well, more funny. Sand or Glass? Well, sand, because, because glass is made of sand, so I just get it that way as well. Oh, fair enough. Chicken or the egg. That's the word said. Chicken. Maha board egg. Yeah. Are AR, VR headsets the future? Do you think they'll replace phones? No. Your reaction to Apple Silicon? Uh, exciting, but let's not forget that they don't actually make it. They just design it. Other people are making it. TSMC make it. Yeah, was, yeah. Um, favorite podcast, apart this, from Jimmy's job. Oh, well, other than this one, which I do love, um, uh, I do like Odd Lots. Have you heard of Odd Lots? It's no, a Bloomberg. It's a Bloomberg podcast book called uh, Joe Weisenthal, Tracy Alloway, and they deal with just random, random stuff like you know shipping and the, the silicon chips and actually a lot of the kind of material world stuff, but also obscure things like what's going on in the guilds 
bonds market. It's it's it's, it's, it's quite if you're a techie, then I recommend it's it. Quite a good one. Um, what's the best way of getting a job at Sky? Um, I'd say be be yeah. We've got so various jobs come up. There are there are internships as well. We we advertise yeah. them. Okay, so keep so keep an eye on social media because we do advertise them. Um, but I would say just try and be out there. You know, get on social media, get your voice heard. If you begin to build up a little bit of a following and show interest in yeah. whatever you're interested in, then that's such a good start. You know, that's that's a lot of CV points there as well. I always say, yeah, tweeting. We know I never had that when I started like yeah. social media. So you kind of, but I think now. If someone comes, you know, to us and they've got a kind of rich history on social media and hopefully kind of, you know, it's yeah. not a kind of controversial history, but like a rich history where they show they're interested in stuff and they show that they've got curiosity and they show they can, they can talk and explain stuff then and root stuff out, then that's kind of, that's a really good start. Um, dream job, if not this one. And I'll give you an example. When Rishi Sunak came on the podcast, he said uh, he'd like to be a uh, Jedi Knight or a Star Wars wing pilot. So that's the kind of... That's the levels we can go to. Was he Prime Minister at the time? He was Chancellor. He was Chancellor. Okay. I'd I'd just like to fly. Fly. Yeah, I'd like to fly. No, but not not like a Jedi. Yeah, yeah. I just want to fly in a plane. I want to glide. Yeah. I got, so maybe it's attainable. Yeah, yeah. I'm quite tall. I think I should have. I got, initially when I was at university, I very nearly went into the um, the BA uh, pilot thing. So I was very nearly, nearly a pilot. Um, but a, I'm a little bit tall. Uh, my my vision's not brilliant. But also, nine eleven happened, and then I, they they kind of cut the things. But yeah, I want to. Let's see, what's bigger risk to humanity, AI or pandemics? Pandemics. God, here's the what's, what's the best, what, what's the most interesting bit that got left on the cutting room floor? Was there a seventh material? Yeah, I heard a whole other chapter. What was that on? Wood. Wood. Ooh. Wood. I was going to do seven materials. I probably shouldn't say this because, you know, maybe I could use this in, in, in future. I was going to do seven. And I went, I, I went and did a lot of the research on it. Yeah. And I went to see, went to see forestry. I would see how, how trees are kind of cut down, what happens to them, all of that stuff. It's fascinating. Just didn't have space for it. That's interesting. Well, Tim Marshall's doing lots of these types of books, right? From like Sky News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, you know, if it sells well enough again, as I say. I did a book club thing with Tim Marshall the other day and he said, look, I'm not trying to sell the book. I've already sold two and a half million of them. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a, that's a good line. Well, that's, that's good. Uh, but it's, <laughs> I, I find them very similar to Tim Marshall, right? The way you were in with such... Yeah, I love, I love his books. I love this. And I, I love Tim, actually. He's kind of a mate. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if... if, if yeah, any, a comparison like that is, is great to class with. Did you have any um, journalist inspiration growing up? Were there any that sort of stuck out with you? My very first... I, I was an intern the Telegraph and the great Bill Deeds, who was the editor of the Telegraph for a while, who, who allegedly was the model for one of the characters in Scoop by Evelyn Moore. Yeah. Like this is a guy who was, who was a reporter back in, you know, hundred years ago, hundred years ago. 
um, I, I, I kind of carried his notebook around for a bit and that was an amazing, like amazing privilege. And yeah, he still, he still, even in his nineties without there with a notepad asking people questions, he's, he's definite. Is that how you keep most of your ideas? Old fashioned notebook? No, I, I write, I write down on my phone. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what, um, but I didn't, I, I, I had shorthand. You get taught shorthand, or at least you did when I started journalism. So I had a hundred words per minute shorthand. What my arsehole for a hundred words a minute? I haven't used it since. Uh, did you fly on Concorde? No. No. Um, and what is the sector that we should be focusing on in the UK? So we're not going to start banning people from leaving the United Kingdom anytime soon, I hope. But if we were given our conversation earlier, what sectors should we really be trying to harness? I think we're really we're really good at AI. Okay, so we've got we've got a starting point there, and it's about how can we use AI tools to make extraordinary kind of energy efficient motors or batteries. There there are so many opportunities there. How can we use AI to make it so we can squeeze ever more copper out of rocks because we're not that great at doing that. Yeah. So. We can leverage that to do amazing things. And I, I hope we will, actually. I really, I think I'm really hopeful about that. So AI, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful about. Uh, I just worry that there's a lot of other kind of basic stuff like, you know, minerals, mining, engineering, that we need to redouble our efforts. Brilliant. Ed, thanks very much for coming on Jewish Jobs of the Future. Do go and buy Material World. It's brilliant fun. It's definitely the best book I've read in 2023. Uh, really, really interesting and insightful. Thank you.